I want to give you just a brief introduction for those of you who don't know me. My name is Jason Fisher. I'm the high school pastor here at Scottsdale Bible Church. I've been here for seven years now. Married to my beautiful wife, Shannon, for 12 years, and we have three kids, my two sons uh, and, a, and a daughter. My two sons are nine and almost eight, and my little girl, Shelby, is five, and they are a delight and a handful. Pastor Jamie asked me to preach this morning, and I could not feel more honored to do so, to open up the Word with you. And uh, he told me I could preach on whatever I wanted to, and uh, honestly, the decision was not difficult. Uh, I actually uh, am choosing to preach on Numbers 20, uh, which is sort of an odd passage, I suppose, if you think about it, but it's something that God has really been using in my life a lot lately, and so I'm really, really eager to dig into that. And what He's he's shown me, and, and is continuing to show me is that this life is not all about me. And my, my parents were visiting last week, and I was talking to my dad about this passage and meditating it on, on it and studying it, and, and I was reminded of a story a few years back, uh, just in this whole vein of it's not all about me. We, uh, we're going to visit my parents. They used to live in Alaska. And we were going to visit them a few years back. And my dad, in preparation for this trip, asked me if there's anything I'd like to do when we go to Alaska. There's a lot to do in Alaska. I think of Alaska and I think of, of snow and cold, but also just a, a land of an abundance of fish and animals and, you know, just all sorts of adventurous things to do. And so I, I thought a little bit and I said, you know, Dad, the one thing I'd love to do in Alaska that I know I probably couldn't do anywhere else is catch a halibut. I'd love to catch a halibut. And so he started making arrangements. And I'm getting really excited. And I'm starting to play out these scenarios in my mind of what it's going to be like to go out on the ocean and catch a halibut. Uh, In fact, I've pretty much, I'd hammered out all the details in my mind. And in the process, my dad is telling me all these stories about people catching dozens of halibut. In fact, one boat came in to the harbor one day and he saw this halibut that was over eight feet long and over 300 pounds. And I'm thinking, yes, that's what I want to do. And so we get to Alaska and the evening before that great day comes and my wife and my mom decide they want to go. And I thought, well, that doesn't play into my scenario. (laughs) This isn't, this isn't right. But I, I thought, you know what, it's not all about me. They can come, uh, and you know, my, wife, my wife gets a little motion sickness, but she had the little patch thing, and so we made arrangements for babysitters, and we got up early the next morning and drove for about two and a half hours, the longest drive in my life, because I couldn't wait to get out on the boat, and we got to Seward, Alaska, into this little boat with this gentleman who was taking us out, and we, we headed out on the boat, and it took about an hour to get to the spot where we were going, but it was beautiful. It was beautiful, just like I had imagined gigantic snow-capped peaks coming right down to the shoreline. The ocean was beautiful. It was a sunny day. It was beautiful out. There was a, a, a massive glacier. And finally, we got to the spot where we were going to fish, and we put the bait on, and we lowered it, and it sank for about a mile, it felt like. And we waited. Nothing. Nothing. We waited some more. Wait, this is, not, this is not the scenario I'd worked out in my mind here. What's going on? And the guy said, well, you know, he's sort of a little, uh, little you know, 
confused about it because he thought this would be a great area, but he said, well, let's reel in, let's go somewhere else. I'm like, okay, well, we'll reel in. I, sh- I thought for sure that I was going to catch something the moment the bait hit the water. It's Alaska. Who doesn't catch a fish in Alaska? And so we go to another spot, and on the way, we get, we get interrupted by a pesky whale. And uh, this whale was, it was breaching about 50 feet away from the boat. It was amazing. In fact, others started popping up. It was incredible. People pay big bucks to go and see this sort of thing. But can you catch a whale? No, you can't. It's illegal. Let's go. Let's go catch a halibut. And we went from spot to spot to spot. And as the morning and the day went on, the scenario that I had in my mind was shattered. And it, it, it became less and less, eh, it's not about me too, this is all about me. And I am so frustrated. The fickle sea yielded one thing that day. I caught an eel. <laughs> Who catches an eel? It was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen, and I reeled it in, and I remember it was just ugly, huge teeth, and it looked at me with its beady little eye, and it mocked me. (laughs) I really felt that way, and as ridiculous as this sounds, on the way back to the harbor, because everyone on the boat, they were just done, they wanted to go, I was so frustrated, angry even, bitter, looking for someone to blame because this is not how it was supposed to be, and I made... That beautiful situation, being out there on the boat, seeing sea lions and whales and arctic puffins and all sorts of stuff. I didn't care. I was miserable. And I remember God speaking to me in my misery on that boat saying, Jason, it's not all about you. But I want it to be about me. I like me. In this life, I've chosen to treat certain people or or circumstances as an inconvenience because I like me, because it's all about me, or worse, an offense to me. I'm so thrilled to lead you in the Word today because God has used this passage in Numbers 20 tremendously in my life, especially in the way I treat others. And my prayer is that God would do the same for you. Let's pray together before we open the Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your living word. I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you show us daily. And God, as we dive into this text, I pray that you would bring it to life in our minds. And God, that we would not walk out of here having just read another Old Testament Bible story, but Lord, that it would be real and vibrant in our hearts because your Holy Spirit is making it that and that you would change us through the truth of your word. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. It's Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. Let me give you a brief background here before I read it. Numbers is believed to be the fourth book written by Moses. He and the Israelites are the principal figures, and the book of Numbers was named so because the sons of Israel were numbered in chapters 1 and 26. It records the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness after God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Let's read Numbers 20, 1 through 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. 
and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. I find this to be a very fascinating passage, and you'll see why over the course here as we dive into it. Primarily, though, I see it as a passage having to do with passions. On one side, we see man's passion for himself. And on the other side, being played out simultaneously, is God's passion for himself. And the two conflict, as we see here, and a resolution is necessary, which God inevitably brings about. As Christians, we are being sanctified. We're being made more and more like Christ. And God is removing our passion for ourselves and replacing it with his passion for himself. This conflict of passions is not something that is foreign to us. It might look a little different, but it's being played out in our lives, and we are in that process of God making His passions our own. First, we need to be able to understand and define our passions for ourselves before we can see how it is contrary to God's passion for Himself. One of the easiest ways is to observe how our self-centered is manifested, self-centeredness is manifested. And I want to see how this plays out here in Numbers 20. What I see here is three things. And the first is that our passion for ourselves, there's three things that I see about our passions for ourselves. The first one is that it is often revealed by a complaining spirit. When we complain, we betray a passion for ourselves, a self-centeredness. And that's exactly what the Israelites are doing. They're complaining They're even saying, you know, we wish we could just go back to Egypt, go back into slavery than this. And they complain. Prior to their wandering, we know that God freed them from slavery in Egypt and led them miraculously. They saw the Red Sea split in two and they walked across it. God led them miraculously with a pillar of fire by night and a a pillar of cloud by day. He provided for their needs miraculously with water and food. 
They had been the direct recipients of his provision, of his grace, of his mercy, of his power. And yet, all over the book of Numbers, we read words like grumble, murmur, complain. Why? Why is that? Because, like us, they're forgetters. They forget. And they were so focused on their circumstances that they even forgot the history of God's direct provision. And so they began to complain. You know, in the midst of complaining, grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? In the midst of complaining, our perspective is in our, on our current circumstances and not the big picture. We're so focused on the scenario that makes me unhappy, so I forget all else. I forget the big picture, and I begin to complain and grumble and murmur. One commentator wrote, God could get them out of Egypt, but it was difficult to get Egypt out of them. Boy, that's true. That's true in my own life. We talk about how, how things used to be. We forget that, that, that God has us in a process. It's all about the process and that it's changing and that we're growing and that he places us in scenarios where we don't know what's going to happen next and we need to trust him. Their passion for themselves was evident by their passion for their own comfort, and so they complained. Put yourself in Moses' sandals for a minute. What do you do? And the Israelites are whining, and you've had it about up to here with it. In this case, at least at first, Moses and Aaron, they do the right thing in their circumstance. They fall on their faces before God, albeit frustrated. They walk away from the people, and they go to the tent of meeting, and they fall on their faces, and God shows up. He appears and he gives them instruction. Take the staff, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock. But Moses is frustrated. Rightfully so, right? I mean, the Israelites, are, they're, they're complaining. They've forgotten. How frustrating is that? I don't know. Because he becomes contemptuous. He partially obeys God, but he decides to take matters into his own hands. Our passion for ourselves is also revealed by our contempt toward others. This happens when we feel disrespected or offended. In bitterness, we take matters into our own hands as we seek justice. We love justice. Justice is a good thing, but it is possible to pervert justice and to make it all about me. And we take matters into our own hands. I had someone a while back give me an unkind gesture on the freeway, and I have no idea why. I'm, I'm serious. I, I have no idea. I, I merged onto the freeway, and there it was in all its glory. And I, I thought to myself, I, what did I do? What did I just do? But i got to be honest with you. Everything in me wanted to speed up and sideswipe this guy into the guardrail. Because how dare he... Or at least give him a dirty look on the way by. <laughs> Why? Why do I feel that way? Because I felt offended. Or I chose to feel offended. My passion was for me and out of contempt. Out of that sort of contempt comes downright anger. And that's exactly where Moses goes with it. 
Verse 11, and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. First he spoke to them. He called them rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And he, and he strikes it. I don't believe I'm reading into the text too far to see Moses' anger here. I don't think he addressed the assembly calmly. Uh, you guys are a bunch of rebels. Um, should we get water for you out of this rock? Strike, strike. That's not what happened. He was angry. He called them rebels. He called them names. And then in anger, he hit the rock. James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Moses did not, did not act out the righteousness that God requires. He disobeyed God. He took matters into his own hands in contempt and frustration and anger. And it went completely contrary to God's righteousness and God's will. Now, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, but it never manifests itself in contempt, anger, or violence. His anger was not born out of an alignment with God's will. It was born out of his own will, his own passion. He felt offended, and so he acted accordingly. He might have even felt offended on God's behalf. I think sometimes we we can relate to that as Christians. We get offended on God's behalf and we get angry. The world doesn't need any more angry Christians. And God doesn't need us to feel offended for Him. He can take care of Himself. In just a few moments, we're going to see how Moses' anger did not even come close to God's righteousness, and neither does ours. Why is this all important? Why, why even focus on this? Why go there? Why talk about how our, our passion for ourselves is manifested? Because, honestly, I can relate. Unfortunately, I can relate. I've complained in my life. I've harbored contempt in my heart towards others. And at times, I've even acted that out in frustration and anger. God has really used this passage to convict me and open my eyes to my passion for myself, particularly as a father and a pastor. I have to admit there are times when my children or a student has disrespected me, and in an attempt to assert my authority, I reveal my passion for myself and fail to address the heart of the individual. Last night even, I love my kids. They're great, they're hilarious, but they're monkeys sometimes. Even last night, this was tested in me, where my flesh felt disrespected by one of my kids, and I had two choices, feel offended and, and instruct him and, and teach him how to respect me, or to offer him grace and truth with compassion and speak to his heart and instruct his heart and use that as a teachable moment rather than act out in my own passion. I'm not proud of the moments where I fail, where I act much like Moses did. But the answer is not found in self-loathing. It's found in God who has a unique passion for himself that is unlike any human selfishness because he alone is worthy of all our praise and honor and glory. He alone is perfect. 
And the amazing thing about God's passion for himself is that we as followers of Christ are partakers of his divine nature. We are the direct recipients, the beneficiaries of his passion for himself. It struck me hard earlier on in my Christian walk when I realized that, you know what? God's greatest passion is not my well-being. Because I used to like to think so. God's greatest passion is for himself. But that has everything to do with me, has everything to do with you. And I want to see how God's passion for himself is revealed, and it's very contrary to man's passion for himself. Look at this. God's passion for himself is revealed by his glory. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron, they enter the tent of meeting, and God, the glory of God appeared to them. To glory in a negative sense is to boast. We can glory in ourselves as we boast, but God in his perfection is the only one worthy of such boasting or glory. The word in the original language can also mean to be heavy in a rich, numerous sense. When God appeared in his glory, there was this sense that of God's abundance and his provision of his power, his strength. All throughout the Old Testament, when God communicated himself to man, to the Israelites, it was in his glory. His glory is his renown. It is who he is. And God's glory evokes the worship of his people. That is the proper response to God's glory. And much like Moses and Aaron, we ought to, at least in our hearts, fall on our faces before his glory. The great Christian writer C.S. Lewis struggled with the concept that God in his glory demanded the praise of his people. He, he likened it almost to that person who, who loves attention and, and who loves to be, to be fed praise. And, and he was even more frustrated with the people that, that indulged that person, that would give that praise. And so is that what God's people are like? We have this God who demands praise and, and, and we give that to him. And, and you can see there, you can see C.S. Lewis playing that out in his mind and, and being confused by that. But all over the Psalms, all over the Old Testament, it talks about giving God the praise he deserves. And he says something very interesting in his work, Reflections on the Psalms. He says, I did not see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. Even in Judaism, the essence of the sacrifice was not really that men gave bulls and goats to God, but that by their so doing, God gave himself to men. That is so profound, that as we worship God, as we give to him sacrificially of our possessions, of our time, of our relationships, our mind, our heart, he gives himself to us in all his glory. We are the beneficiaries of God's passion for himself which leads us to his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is played out here. God's provision, particularly in his sovereignty. The fact that he is in control, it reveals a passion for himself because he is the great provider and he alone, he alone can produce water from a rock in the desert. And the thing that I find interesting here is that God's sovereignty is not conditioned on our obedience or disobedience. Praise God. He provides for them in spite of their sin, in spite of the Israelites' sin, and in spite of Moses' sin. I don't know about you, but I was a little startled in this narrative that God actually allowed water to come from the rock. 
The Israelites were whining. They were complaining. They had forgotten what God had done. Moses acted in complete disobedience and dishonor, and yet water still comes out. Why? Why didn't he just give them what they deserve? Because he's sovereign, because he's in control, because he is the great provider, and he said he would produce water, and so it will be. And God has promised us things throughout his word, and in his sovereignty, he makes them happen. I think we tend to view our relationship with God as largely transactional. The sort of thing, if I do the right things, if I jump through the right hoops, God will come through on his promises and, and, he'll, deli- and he'll give me the things that I want and need. That's not, ex- that's not it at all. We are entirely consumers of God's kingdom, even in our rebellion, even in our sin, as we see here with Moses and the Israelites. Now, that is not to say that we don't discipline ourselves or that there are not consequences for our sin. I'm not saying that, but we cannot thwart God's sovereignty. And God's promises are dependent upon Him. Praise God for that. Because if His sovereignty, if His provision was dependent upon my actions, Jesus Christ would never have come. That is His great provision for us. In fact, Romans 5 talks about the fact that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, while we were wallowing in our rebellion, we weren't even looking for God. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, in His sovereign provision because He loves us and He is in control. And the Bible clearly teaches that we are in sin, that sin is this condition, it's a rebellion. And it's seen, it's seen in all sorts of things. We, we seek satisfaction in things other than God. And the Bible teaches that the punishment for that sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. Because God is holy. He is perfect. He is just. And He cannot turn a blind eye to our rebellion. And so He provided in His Son, Jesus Christ, to take on His wrath, to take on His righteous anger in our stead in my stead, and that we will believe in Jesus Christ, we can know God. We face eternity and heaven with him, but it, it starts here and now as well, and God is changing us because Jesus Christ is in us. And that leads me to God's holiness. God's passion for himself is revealed here in his glory, his sovereign provision, and in his holiness. God is passionate for his holiness. The word here means to be clean, set aside for use in worship. You see, there's no such thing as degrees of holiness. That's not possible. Either it's holy or it's completely unholy. There is no in-between. Holiness is a very delicate thing. Uh, I was helping a friend work on his motorcycle. We we tore the engine completely down. Uh, to fix some things on it. And uh, it's a big four-cylinder, 750 cc, and it comes in three major parts. The bottom part is the crankcase, then there's the cylinder block, and then the, the uh, cylinder head. And we took it all the way down to the crankcase to replace some things and so on. And I, I put it all back together again, put it all back together, put it back in the frame of the motorcycle, put everything back on. It was time-consuming. It took me hours. And I went to start it up, and it started right up. I was so happy. It started right up. And then I rode it around the block 
I was so happy, and I got it back, and I parked it, and I looked, and it was gushing oil out the front. (laughs) And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And I tried. I tried all sorts of things. I tried a quick fixes, you know, and, but I could tell there was a gap in the front where on the mating surfaces between the crankcase and the cylinder block. And so I ended up having to take everything off, everything back out again, strip everything down, and I, I took the cylinder block off of the crankcase, and I couldn't believe it. Right there, between the mating surfaces, was this little washer. I thought, you've got to be kidding. How did that get there? I guess in my haste, I just wasn't paying attention. But can you believe it? This dumb little, probably two-cent washer completely destroyed the integrity of that finely tuned machine. That's what holiness is kind of like. One little blemish renders holiness completely useless. It is no longer holy. The tiniest smudge, the tiniest sin or act of rebellion. And this is the key to my last question here. What is Moses' great sin? What is the big deal here? Honestly, an impulsive response to this text might be, isn't God overreacting here a little bit? I mean... He, he doesn't do it quite right, sure. He says some mean things, and he, he does, he, you know, he throws kind of some character into the way he brings the water out. And you're not going to let him into the promised land? I mean, he's been wandering forever for this. It seems a little harsh, God. I mean, what about all the other times he did what you asked him to do? Doesn't that count for something? What is the great sin here? Incidentally, God is not overreacting because Moses' passion was contrary to God's passion. And in doing so, Moses and Aaron did not uphold God as holy. Let me repaint the picture for you here one last time. The Israelites complain. They're wandering in the desert. It's hot. I can relate just to about a week ago, my dad and I, we got stuck out in the desert, out in the superstitions, and uh, we lost the trail and we didn't have enough water for, for the length of time that it turned out to be out there. And it was bad. I, it was, I was so thirsty. So I can relate and I kind of know what it feels like to want to complain. So they're complaining. They go to Moses and Aaron and they blame them. And and Moses and Aaron, they fall on their faces and the glory of God appears. So God tells them what to do. He says, take the staff. Did you find it interesting that God told them to take the staff and then not use it? Because there was an incident before, we read about it earlier in Exodus, where God told Moses to strike the rock and water came out. This is a separate incident. He told him to take the staff but not use it. Why is that? Because the staff is a symbol of authority. And Moses was to act in the authority that God had given him. It was most likely Aaron's staff that budded in Numbers 17. And then he told them to assemble the congregation. Get them ready to hear my words and see my provision, God says, and then speak to the rock. So Moses takes the staff as he's told. He and Aaron walk out of the tent of meeting where they have just experienced the glory of God. They've just spoken with God. He told them exactly what to do. And the people are watching and waiting. They assemble the congregation. They're watching and waiting and they're thinking, he has the staff. 
He's just spoken with God. He's going to speak out in authority here. He has a word for us from God. But Moses speaks in his frustration and contempt. He chastises them. You rebellious people. Shall we bring water out for you? And I have to imagine the people standing there thinking, are these God's words for us? Is, is that what, what God told Moses and Aaron to, to say to us? And then he strikes the rock in anger. What is the great sin? They did not uphold God as holy. They misrepresented God to his people. Moses essentially put words into God's mouth and acted contrary to the will of God. It could even be argued that he failed to trust the way God handled the situation and took matters into his own hands. I can relate to that. There are many situations where I feel like contempt and anger would solve the problem a lot quicker and a lot easier than the way he prescribes in his word. And we take matters into our own hands. Here's the problem, though. In the eyes of the Israelites, Moses jeopardized God's perfection because Moses put words into God's mouth instead of being God's mouthpiece. Rather than allowing God's passion to infiltrate his heart and communicate that to the people, he projected his own passion onto God, thereby desecrating his holiness. He was acting in God's authority, and he misused it. He misrepresented God to his people. This has had an enormous impact on my life as I pause and contemplate who looks to me as God's representative. Who in my life sees me as an authority figure, as God's representative? Certainly my children, my wife, but I think many others around me, especially when they know that I'm a follower of Christ. And in those moments when I feel offended or disrespected by a complete stranger on the freeway or, or, or by someone who I love dearly like my wife or kids, God is reminding me that I have the responsibility of being his mouthpiece in those situations. I realize I have the choice between feeling offended or being the bearer of God's grace and compassion. The truth is that every follower of Christ has that privilege. James, Pastor Jamie has just led us through 1 Peter 2.9 where it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's us. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of this darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are Christ's representatives and have been charged with proclaiming his excellencies. In our words, yes, but especially in our actions. Who is it you're proclaiming those excellencies to? Is it a coworker? a friend, your children. Don't miss an opportunity to proclaim his excellencies instead of reacting from the passion of your flesh. 
You don't have to be a pastor or leader. To the people in your life, you are God's mouthpiece and the bearer of his grace. How do you represent him in the good times when things aren't going so well, when you're complimented and when you're offended? This does not hem us in. This does not confine us. It's a liberating truth. In the thick of life, when you have the choice between feeling offended or offering the truth in love, remember that you have been freed from the necessity to represent yourself to the great privilege of representing God to those around you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I confess my deep need for you. Lord, I need your grace, I need your mercy and your power and your compassion. I fall short of your glory and your holiness every day. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who have a passion for you. God, I ask that in this life you would conform our passions more and more to yours. And God, that we would experience the immense joy that comes with that, the freedom that comes with not having to feel offended anymore because it's not about me. God, it's about you. I thank you for that great freedom and that great privilege to be your representatives. And I pray, God, I know that we are, we were, we are going to get tested this week. We're going to have situations, whether it's our, our children, a family member, a coworker, a friend, that challenges us. We might even feel disrespected by them because they won't do what we ask or they, they insult us even inadvertently. And Lord, I pray that in that moment this week, you would remind us of these words and that you would extend your grace to us that we may extend it to that individual. Lord, give us strength and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good morning.